X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, November 30th. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving weekend. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, November 30th, 1924, Shirley Chisholm was born. Shirley Anita Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, began her career as an early childhood teacher, spoke out for civil rights and women's rights, advocated for the poor, and opposed the Vietnam War. In 1963, she was elected to the New York State Assembly, the lower house of the New York State Legislature. And four years later, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress. She led expansion of food and nutrition programs for the poor, rose to Democratic Party leadership. In 1972, Shirley Chisholm became the first African-American candidate for a major party's nomination for president of these United States and the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. She retired from Congress in 1983, taught at Mount Holyoke College, continuing her political organizing on the side. Nominated for ambassadorship in 1993, she had to withdraw due to health issues. She passed away in 2005, was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2015. We'll start with the Quick 6 News headline, and we'll have an interview with Talia Lavin. She went embedded undercover into the dark web among white supremacists in the name of her book, Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Two reports out last week revealed the dangers of living in Portland, Oregon, while black. Data recently put out by the police bureau shows that black drivers in Portland are pulled over at a much higher rate than white drivers. The report included data on 33,035 vehicle stops made by Portland police in 2019, last year. Black residents make up 5.8% of Portland's population. They accounted for 18% of the vehicle stops. White drivers, 75% of the population, made up 65% of the vehicle stops. For non-moving violation stops, where officers are granted more discretion, the disparities are even worse. Black people made up 22% of those stops. White people, 62%. Police Bureau maintains these numbers show the first year that African Americans were not stopped at a disparate rate. That's based on the Bureau's disparity index, which used data outside the regular census numbers to come to conclusions about demographics. For example, the Traffic Division uses demographic data of people involved in collision injuries to determine disparities in stops. Elliot Young, co-chair of the Portland Committee on Community-Engaged Policing, accused the Portland Police Bureau, and I'm quoting, simply fishing for benchmarks to justify disproportionate policing of black people. In 2019, police stops increased from previous years dramatically. 12% for vehicle stops, 95% for pedestrian stops. Stops resulted in searches nearly 4% of the time. 8.2% of pulled over black drivers were searched, while only 3.1% of white drivers were searched. But contraband was more likely to be found on white drivers than on black drivers. Meanwhile, the hits keep coming. Traffic safety nonprofit Oregon Walks released data showing that black pedestrians are three times more likely than white pedestrians to be hit and killed by a vehicle. The nonprofit is compiling data from 2017 to 2019 for reports set to release early next year. Eight out of 48 pedestrian traffic incident victims were black, and all 48 incidents occurred in neighborhoods with below median income. Tamor Ender, board member of Oregon Walks, says that if we address the disparities, we will get to zero deaths. A big piece of this dynamic is that fatal incidents are much more likely to happen east of 82nd Avenue and more likely to happen in the dark. Every single black victim was killed in the dark. The Portland Bureau of Transportation has said that it is working on a $13.6 million project which will include new street lighting in East Portland. I remember back in 2008, by the way, Katie and I went to a Transportation Bureau town hall meeting. And on the wall, they had maps of where the high accident, high fatality intersections were. Whereas only about a fifth of the population lived east of 82nd Avenue, half of the high fatality intersections happened east of 82nd Avenue. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. 
On Sunday, the Oregon Health Authority reported a death toll of 900 from COVID. Sunday saw nine deaths and 1,599 new cases. The state's case total is now at 74,120. To help contact tracing efforts, researchers in Oregon and Washington are developing an app that will tell you if you're near someone who tested positive for COVID. The software entered its beta testing phase earlier this month as an opt-in smartphone app. Using Bluetooth, the app can detect when other users are nearby. The app doesn't store location or name data. But if someone you were nearby tests positive for COVID, you will get a notification alerting you of possible contact. The app is being developed by students at OSU and University of Washington. OSU Vice President of University Relations Steve Clark says that, quote, this is not an alternative to traditional contact tracing. It is additive. The advantage of the app is that it can contact people who might not have been contacted otherwise, as it can alert people who are complete strangers. The developers are looking to roll out the app in Washington in December. However, the app only works when most people have it. Researchers expect that trust in big tech will be the largest hurdle to the app's success. According to researchers, even if only 15% of the population has the app, it can provide major benefits. 15 other states in the U.S., including Washington, D.C., have already launched similar contact notification apps. The Bureau of Land Management on Friday revealed a plan that would aim to protect a 350,000-square-mile area. It covers parts of Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Utah, and Nevada. Plan costs about $2 million, originated from the Obama administration. It mainly suggests vegetation removal or transformation in rangeland areas. Document released on Friday is a programmatic environmental impact statement. It means it's not specific about any projects, but can be used by local land managers to comply with environmental law. Critics of the plan say it'll protect land users such as mining companies and ranchers while harming imperiled wildlife like the sage grouse. Treatment for the land approved by the plan include fuel breaks, which fragment habitats, as well as prescribed burns and cattle grazing. While experts are debating the effects of these measures on ecosystems, they do note the wildfires destroy big chunks of habitat and can replace it with invasive species. Young people voted. In Multnomah County, voter turnout among eligible voters increased from 80% in 2016 to 82% in 2020. Almost all of that increase was due to voters aged 18 to 24. 67% of voters in that age demographic cast their ballots this year compared to 56% in 2016. Voter turnout in all other age groups increased by at most 2%, according to data from Portland-based DHM Research. The polling firm noticed that in Portland's mayoral race, voters largely split by age. Younger voters supported Diana Roan overwhelmingly, while older voters tended towards incumbent Mayor Ted Wheeler. The largest voter turnout for any age group was 163,932 in the 55-plus age group. Decriminalization of drugs in Oregon starts next year. Here's what that means. The law will be enacted February of 2021. At the same time, the Health Authority will put together a council overseeing the funding of statewide substance abuse programs. The money will come from marijuana sales tax revenue. It's got to be distributed by October of 2021. And by the end of the year after that, 2022, the Secretary of State will conduct performance and financial audits on whatever program the OHA has decided to fund. Under Measure 110, that's the thing people just passed, misdemeanor drug possessions will become non-criminal violations like a traffic offense. People found with a small amount of cocaine, methamphetamine, or heroin will likely just get a ticket. 
and felony drug possession cases will now be classified as misdemeanors. And felony drug possession cases, most of those will now be classified as misdemeanors. Prosecutors are already taking various approaches to drug charges in the meantime. In Clackamas County, the DA's office said it would stop charging new cases that fell under the law. As for the Multnomah County DA's office, here's the quote. They continue to review and plan for implementation of Measure 110. And finally, some good news. Activist groups are working to get incarcerated firefighters paid. Oregon fires this summer were fought by about 285 imprisoned Oregonians. These firefighters made roughly $10 a day. A coalition of activist groups is seeking to raise $55,000 or enough to put $200 into the commissary accounts of each inmate. The coalition spent over a month this summer trying to get the names of the firefighters from the Oregon Department of Corrections. The activist groups include Lane County Mutual Aid, Critical Resistance Portland, Care Not Cops PDX, Black and Pink PDX, and Siskiyou Abolition Project. The groups sent letters to the firefighters who were enthusiastic about the support from the community. Evan Quarles from Lane County Mutual Aid said that, quote, most of the people we are in contact with were extremely glad to hear people recognize the labor that they do to save the lives of countless people. The fundraiser started over a week ago and includes a raffle with prizes from Oregon artists. The group is also looking for volunteers who would like to keep a correspondence with inmates in Oregon prisons. The coalition is also working on appealing to Kate Brown for a pardon for the firefighters. Listeners can learn more about the fundraiser on Instagram at Imprisoned Firefighter Funds OR. And that's that today's, today's Quick Six, Six Local, Local Rundown. Rundown. X-ray. And now we have an interview with Talia Lavin, a writer based in New York. She'll be speaking with Jefferson Smith about her new book, Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. Here are Talia and Jefferson. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How you feeling? How you doing? How's it going? How's your family? How are you surviving this wacky, crazy, challenging, fatal year? Um, I'm doing all right. Thankfully, my family's all right. Um, I'm impressed that your audience wakes up so early, uh, frankly, <laughs> and so do you. Um, I'm usually a later riser and uh, enjoying my East Coast lag time. <laughs> there, there is an advantage. Doing West Coast morning interviews from the East Coast is the easiest way to do it. I actually think that most morning hosts on the West Coast should probably be based in the East Coast. That's my, uh, I think that's probably how it ought to work. What got you started on? That's a hot on, take, yeah. I know, it's, it's, I'm trying to zag what everybody else is zigging. What, yeah. <laughs> what got you? But no, I'm, I mean, it's a crazy time, and right now in particular is a crazy time for the, the far right Um some of them are veering really deep into conspiracy about the election, and there's a lot of potential for violence right now, kind of, that I'm seeing building up what I, uh, what I saw in the research for Culture Warlords, my book. Yeah, what got you on this journey? What made you decide to start focusing your attention on this particularly dark spot of the dark web? Well, it helped that they came to me first. I'm a... Uh, you know, I'm a Jewish woman. Uh, I'm quite outspoken on the internet, and I've been writing about the far right for years. And they noticed and kind of came at me with all of their firepower. And so 
my reaction to these sort of waves of harassment, the anti-Semitism, the misogyny, was kind of instead of shrinking back and, and turning away, was to kind of decide to peer into the abyss and, and find out who are these people? Where is this coming from? How big is this movement? And what are its goals and motivations? Um, and how do we stop it? What did you learn? So, what was the thing you know, that what's, what yeah. surprised you most as you started getting into it? So they start coming at you. You start looking into it. Did most of it, most of your work confirm your presuppositions or is anything disrupted some of your initial hypotheses? Um, I mean, I think it was more like things being reinforced than total shock because I, I did have some familiarity with the white power movement before I kind of really dove in and made it a 24-7 lifestyle to kind of be digging into this stuff. Um, I would say the main lesson that I took away is like that white supremacists, white power uh, movementarians are not monsters. They're not geographically concentrated in any one region, um, although you guys in Oregon have more than your fair share. Oh. Um, they're not you know, from any one socioeconomic class. Um, I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, they're monsters and they're incomprehensible or they're poor, they're distressed, they're uniquely at some sort of disadvantage that leads them into the arms of this movement. And I think neither of those things are true. You know, the people that I studied that I wound up even like talking to, sometimes undercover and sometimes not, were people with jobs and wives and lives and, uh, you know, people from all over the country, lots in New York and California, um, people from all over the socioeconomic spectrum, and all of them were human beings, you know, who had just made this series of choices to inculcate hate in their lives and to inflict it on others. Um, are they, are they all know, handsome, smart, and white powerful? No. I mean, uh, they vary, right? Just like anyone else. I mean... That most of them are white. Um, that's really the defining feature. But um, beyond that, I think, um, you know, I don't find their humanity to be absolving. <laughs> it didn't lead, lead me to rush to forgiveness or writing lighthearted profiles about how dapper they are. Um, it just made me see their choice to inflict hate, pain, shame, and fear on others every day as kind of the culmination of a series of human choices. And to me, that's even worse. <laughs> you know, that, that really calls for condemnation. How did you dig in going undercover? What, what even made you start? You start, is that as simple as just using an alternative web address and, you know, listening instead of shouting down? Yeah. I mean, part of it was that, I didn't necessarily set about to write a gonzo book. Um, it's just that, you know, when you're a Jewish woman exploring these kind of radicalized, misogynistic, anti-Semitic communities, it's very hard to get in the front door. Um, and so what I wound up doing was creating a series of identities, like a really racist matryoshka doll. Uh, and some of them were for listening, eavesdropping um, on these chat rooms, saying just enough to get into more private chat rooms where I could see what 
what was being said. Uh, and in other cases, I sort of really fabricated identities with backstories. Um, for example, in order to go undercover on an all-white dating site, whitedate.net, um, and get uh, white supremacists looking for love to write love letters to my um, avatar. You know, I asked them to sort of say, like, what would you, what would you want? Uh, like, what would you write to your ideal white wife? And um, they wrote love letters, and I printed them in the book. And it was sort of a crash between Nicholas Sparks and Mein Kampf, um, really just uh, sort of going out on a limb and and seeing what uh, what the rank and file of the white power movement is doing and saying on a daily basis. Anything new? I remember studying the uh, white supremacy movements in college, and I don't mean merely those that uh, begat the Nazi movement and totalitarian regimes in uh, Europe in the 1930s. Uh, I mean also, uh, I, I mean also contemporary, and it is jarring. I remember that a cousin of mine uh, had a home that they were selling. And or excuse me, they were going to rent, and they uh, and they started renting it to a uh, they started renting it to a couple from Africa, and they got a letter from a neighbor uh, who they were going to be in a business deal with, saying we no longer. I don't know if it was actually a neighbor. I don't know if it was a neighbor. They got a, a letter from somebody that they were going to be in a business business deal. Said, well, you are renting to uh, somebody from Africa. That is not something we can support, and we're not prepared to do this business deal. And the guy. And, and then the guy included within his within his letter uh, sort of his ideology about uh, his, shall we say, racial analysis, uh, which gives it far too much credit. And uh, and it floored my cousin, like not that it, to, to him, this was something that existed in books. This wasn't something that somebody would say out loud. Certainly not somebody that he knew that it was his in his circle, not this closest of friends, but somebody that was in his circle. And it floored him is did this again confirm your suspicions and fears or were there moments where you were floored at the and surprised and shocked and not only appalled at what you're witnessing what you were hearing and reading in these chat rooms what nicholas sparks plus my mind comp were willing to write i mean i think being appalled is different than being shocked right um you know, certainly the toxicity of the environment, the floridity, the violence, but just the constant grinding wish for violence, the ways that they would share, like, videos of black people dying and laugh about it, you know, share the grisliest, you know, kind of content um, as, you know, a means of desensitization to the deaths of their perceived racial enemies. I mean, it was grim to encounter on a constant basis. Um, but I would say, you know, unlike your friend, I have a little bit of a more jaundiced view of the public. And um, like I said, I'd spent enough time being accosted by the white power movement and then, you know, studying its, its uh, broad contours that I wasn't necessarily shocked I buy it, but um, but plenty appalled. And um, you know, I asked your question about like what what is new about it. I mean, what what's new is 
the the technological means of dissemination. So yeah. you have, you know, everything from encrypted apps to kind of mainstream social media to these far right social media alternatives to forums to message boards and all of it has the immediacy and the anonymity of the internet that made the clan recognize immediately how useful the internet could be and adopt it in the early 80s when it was still DARPANET. Um, you know, white supremacists, the white power movement were some of the earliest internet innovators and, and realized their potential, potential it had in, in building a global and, and, and cross-national community. Um, I was surprised by how global the movement is. I mean, you can trace, like, one example that I cite when I talk about how global the white nationalist, white supremacist movement is, is that um, Brenton Tarrant, the man who shot 53 uh, Muslims in a mosque in New Zealand, in Christchurch, um, you know, had donated, I think it was $1,500 to... A man in Europe named Martin Selner, who, uh, a man in Austria, who, who was building the Generation Identity white supremacist movement in Europe. And Selner, in turn, has an American wife who went by Brittany Pettibone and had been uh, making white supremacist YouTube comment, uh, like uh, videos in the States. So, I mean, that's just through one example you see the global reach of this movement. Um, you know, anywhere where there's sort of a white majority or a, you know, and, and this, this desire to sort of quote unquote reclaim it, um, or say we are a white country, you know, like the white supremacist movement has its tentacles. And so, um, the, the globality of the movement, um, it definitely like drove home to me, you know. So not just and white nationalists. The, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, one of the figures I engaged with the most was a young Nazi in Ukraine, right? Yeah. It, it is a global movement. Not just white nationalists, but white internationalists. Uh, and they, um, they do talk to one another across country and ocean, um, and they're sharing the same violent dreams. I mean... I would say the biggest thing that was driven home to me was the way the core of this movement is violence and any slick rhetoric about, you know, oh, we're just, you know, working for white wellness or, you know, why can't we have white pride or whatever is just meant to obscure very violent goals. Cleansing. Say more um, about that. Explain it. Because one of the, 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 the idea of modern, uh, Sort of wider, modern white supremacist strategy, growth strategy, you know, long-term strategy for victory, whatever that looks like. Uh, when, uh, yeah, you continue to connect those dots betwixt the uh, the movement and violence, and how you say, and what's the end game, and if you think the that they're moving in the direction that they hope to be moving. Well, of course, there are different tendencies within the movement. It's not a monolith. Um, so you have, for example, a big swath of kind of nihilist accelerationists who just want to see civilization as we know it collapse and kind of build a white ethno state among the ruins. And so they're the ones who hew to a tradition of really terrorism, um, you know, with the goal of creating maximum fear 
uh, creating maximum instability and chaos. Uh, and then, you know, they want their pure ethnically cleansed state to rise out of the ruins they create. So that's a big swath. And I would say that group um, is like looking right now at the, the chaos unfolding in the U.S. and sort of licking their chops, but um, also kind of maybe they want to hasten it along, but that I, that hasn't necessarily, thank God, emerged yet. Um, and there are people who want to win hearts and minds, right, through this idea of like identitarianism of just like let's be proud to be white. It's okay to be white. Let's let's you know win over white people uh, to our very racist, very violent way of thinking through this kind of rhetoric about identity. Um, so there are different tendencies. There are different moves. All of them over the past five years, given who has been in the White House, have experienced growth in numbers. Have experienced a sort of breakdown of the social cost of open bigotry and, um, you know, found more permission and more occasion um, to, to take their ideology to the streets and to spread it more boldly online. Um, so, you know, what I saw uniformly was that the past five years had been a locus of opportunity for, for white supremacists uh, and, and for the white power movement more broadly. Um, and that, that was disconcerting and um, definitely hardened my resolve in opposition. The uh, pathway now, any, when did you finish? When did you finish writing? Um, I finished writing, kind of put the last touches on the book in June. Okay, so five months before the election. How much follow-up are you doing? I could imagine it having some impact on your mental health being in all these chat rooms and dark web locales and using these various aliases as you do your gonzo, uh, as you do your gonzo investigation. Uh, have you been following up with your old uh, acquaintances, if you will, and, and had any window into if things have ramped up since November or since the beginning of this month? Uh, or if uh, or if there's been any change in tenor? So I've been keeping an eye. Um, I've been a little less involved because I'm not currently writing a book. Um, and I've looked more into the militia movement for some other stuff I'm writing and working on. Um, and that's been interesting. Uh, I would say the white power guys, the sort of open Hitler fans that I like was primarily examining for the book feel vindicated in their sort of general nihilism and their conviction that, you know, Jews are controlling the world and, you know, all sorts of nasty things about black people. And they're talking about, you know, uh, rising up, building power, capitalizing on chaos but aren't necessarily moving particularly um i mean i think they're using this as an occasion to say democracy is a sham and you know it's uh we told you the jews are in control right um but but they're not necessarily like a lot more amped up because they weren't that invested in donald trump 
Um, but uh, except, you know, very early on there was a romance, but but they were a little bit disinvested as time wore on, um, and they saw him as more of a creature of the establishment. Um, the militia movement is in a different place. Uh, you guys in Oregon, like I said, have to deal with a, a lot more of that than is your fair share. Um, but certainly militias exist all over the country. I think there's much more potential for violence there. Of course, they're heavily armed and very invested in Donald Trump and the current sort of fight, protracted fight that he's waging. Um, and if I had to pinpoint a locus for violence, you know, I'm looking very closely at the Stop the Steal rallies across the country. There's, there's a series of rallies happening right now in Georgia culminating on Saturday, and I'm really keeping a close eye on that, including, you know, sort of some more infiltration type stuff. And, um, you know, my mental health is uh, <laughs> has, has never been amazing. Um, it's definitely taken a few body blows over the last year or two. Um, but I think it's important to have an ear on this stuff and to call it out in no uncertain terms and as specifically as possible. And that's the goal of Culture Warlords um, and the goal of anything I'm doing now. Talia Lavin, thank you so much for spending the time today. The book, again, is Culture Warlords, and thanks for being on X-Ray. Thank you. Thanks to Talia for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.